the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. You're very welcome back to the hard shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until seven o'clock. And delighted to say that Matthew Paris is my guest for the Thursday interview this week. The former Conservative Party MP, the newspaper columnist, the author. And Matthew, it's an absolute pleasure. How are you? Very well, very well, and and very pleased to be talking to you. Um, Before we, I suppose, dig into you, as it were, I I, I do have to ask, uh, given what's happening at the moment in in Westminster, what odds you give Boris uh, and his survival or otherwise? I mean, he's been written off before and he survived before. Yes, he's hanging by a thread, but um, he's made, uh, well, he's perfected the art of hanging by thread, so he may hang... Quite a bit more. I would give him. Uh, I would give him sixty forty in favour of getting through the next couple of months, and I would give him forty sixty in favour of getting through to the end of the year. Oh, what what will change at those <laughs> local elections? What what changes? Yeah, but the local elections. Um, I I don't suppose that uh, Sue Gray's report will be very helpful to him, but he, he may hope that everyone's kind of calmed down a bit. Since then, he's shot. His credibility is is shot. There is no no coming back for him. But I I think he could kind of crawl on at Downing Street for a while. The the local elections look as though they might be very, very bad for the Conservative Party. That might be the trigger. You never know what trigger there's going to be. But he is accident prone, as well as being brilliant at um, rescuing himself from the consequences (laughs) of his accidents. Well, look, it is a story that's going to rumble on. We had Armando Iannucci on the show a little bit earlier talking about Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's brilliant. People can listen back to that podcast that's up on the News Talk app. Uh, Your upbringing, would it be fair to describe you as very much a a child of empire? Yes. Yes, I was a a wild colonial boy, really. I was (laughs) um, born in South Africa where my parents, they had actually a bit like... But not many, not many people know this. T- Tony Blair's family actually emigrated to Australia, meaning to to emigrate permanently, and then came back again. Same with my mum and dad. After the Second World War, they couldn't find anywhere to live in England. They emigrated to South Africa just when the Afrikaner nationalist government was coming in. They saw the way things were going with apartheid, and with me, an 11-month-old baby, they, they came back to Britain. Then we were back in... well. <laughs> Then we were in, um, where was it, Cyprus for four years from the age of four for me and and then back in Southern Africa in what's now Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. And that's really, that's really my boyhood, my African boyhood from age eight to age 19 in uh, Rhodesia and um, at school in Swaziland. And uh, were you very much, and did you see yourself very much as English or British or or, or ha- what type of identity had you? British. Um, my parents, are, my late parents, were terribly British. Uh, my mother spoke as I do. And actually, I got quite a lot of grief at school in, in Rhodesia because I did not have a Rhodesian or a South African accent. I talked like a, a an Englishman, like a limey, like a pommy, as they used to call us. And... Um, <laughs> Because I, but I come say, from who, a, who was who was calling you a pommy? I assume oh, the other children of of, of immigrants. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the other the other white uh, immigrants. But you know, they had adopted the local accent, 
and some of the local attitudes too towards race relations and things like that. And my, my family stood rather apart from that. So I was a little bit teased and bullied at school, but, you know, nothing I couldn't handle. Uh, um, was it always on the cards then for you, given, you know, you, you identified very much as British, to, to return to Britain? Was that was that always home or, or despite the identity, were you a little rootless because of that itinerant upbringing? I think it would have depended on how things went in Africa. If if there had continued to be a place, a secure place for white people in Africa, and if the whites and the blacks had got on with each other um, and, and learnt to live together in Zimbabwe, I, I could imagine having decided to, to, to stay. But I, in, in the event... Rhodesia was declaring independence unilaterally at that time. Uh, everything was going wrong in race relations. There didn't seem to be a future. And I was sent to a multiracial school in Swaziland, that being the only uh, sub-Saharan African school that was multiracial. And my parents were very keen that I wouldn't have just a, a one-race education. And we did the British GCE, A-level, O-level, all that kind of thing. And I got accepted by Cambridge. So... At that point, I suppose my life took a turning uh, from which I've never since deviated. And then what was your your view and your assessment of, of the breakup of empire? Like, given you were very much a child of empire and that wild colonial boy upbringing, uh, how, how did you view all of that disintegrating? I saw and, and still see the good and the bad of it. Uh, I feel that Rhodesia particularly, was quite a happy country before Ian Smith and his rather racist government came in. I, I feel that it was probably the better for British colonial-style administration. We had education, we had roads, um, it, there was peace, and we were slowly moving towards racial integration. And, and not, not just there, but everywhere in the world. I see, I see the good side of what the British have done as colonial masters but I also see the bad side I I have experienced personally the the, um, the the awful racism and I know we now complain that the Chinese are, are madly extracting mineral resources uh, from Africa but that's what we were doing we British were doing too so I end up ambivalent but with, with yes a little bit of pride in in the good things that were done is it true you were offered a job at MI6? Yes, yes. It was, um, I was at Cambridge in my last year and I got a sort of tap on the shoulder from a Don whom I didn't know who said, was I interested in a rather unusual kind of public service and told me what it was. And I said yes. And so I went for interview with a man who came to Cambridge to interview undergraduates and uh, that led to me going down to London uh, to um, a, a sort of uh, headquarters of uh, MI6 uh, not far from St James Park for further interviews and then I ended up in a final interview um, with about 12 old men sitting around the table mm. and um, it, it all went quite well and um, they said um we notice, uh, we notice that one of your referees is a Miss Elizabeth Bingley. 
I was gay, I should should mention, and you couldn't be gay in those days in MI6, and I hadn't told anybody. Yes, I said, yeah, yeah, she's a, she's a very good friend, a, a very good friend indeed. And um, <laughs> they took that as uh, tipping the wink that, that she was a girlfriend. Poor Elizabeth wasn't a, a girlfriend, she was just a very good friend. So um, the, the next day I was offered a job as a, a spy in MI6, and I thought about it and I thought, this is not a good idea. I thought of all the British spy scandals um, in that century, which was then the 20th century. And so I went into the regular foreign office instead, uh, where you also couldn't be gay, but it wouldn't wouldn't have been um, such a catastrophe if I'd got found out, but I didn't. Uh, when you said, like, you couldn't be gay, officially you couldn't be? Culturally no. you couldn't be? But, but more, more, uh, more officially than culturally, there were plenty of people in the British diplomatic service, as you would imagine, who were gay, yeah. but nothing was said. And was it an open? But was it an oh, open oh, secret? I suppose is what I'm asking. Open secret, yes, yes. I, I remember my friend Tristan Garrel Jones later in the Lords. He was a Foreign Office minister, and they they had a a chap who'd uh, gone right through the diplomatic service um, very successfully, never married, um, in inverted commas, as it were, and they wanted him to go to. Paraguay and he said could I bring my mother (laughs) (laughs) the minister was consulted and uh, said yes yes bring your mother and apparently she became a kind of paragon of hostesses in um, in 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 Paraguay and and she was she was quite quite um, quite quite celebrated across the capital I I I read a a line from you I'm not sure how true it is that it is it's something of an apocryphal story in in 19... I, what, what, I'm not sure what year it was exactly. 1984, I think. You, you claim to have come out in the House of Commons, but nobody noticed. Mm. This, um, How did that happen? Was actually, this was related to Northern Ireland. The age of consent had been um, lowered in England. Then it was lowered in Scotland. And as many of your listeners will know, there was a huge resistance especially um, uh, amongst unionists in, in Northern Ireland, but probably you know across the population, there was a resistance to lowering the age of consent in, in Northern Ireland and eventually, uh, elbowed by the European Union, the UK government decided that the law had to be extended to Northern Ireland and we had a late-night debate. I thought, this is my moment. I'd been an MP then for three years. This is my moment, so... I said it was a subject on which I I felt deeply, passionately and very personally. And um, one could always argue the toss when one was not personally engaged with something. But I was so personally engaged with this that all I could say was that I commended it um, with all my heart. And I thought that was a coming out speech, but um, <laughs> no, nobody noticed. Did that burst your bubble to some degree? <laughs> yes, I had expected, you know, a storm of publicity. I would have been the first um, member of parliament to, to, to acknowledge being gay uh, openly. Uh, but in, in the end, that honour was left to Chris Smith and the, the Labour Party, a very brave man. <laughs> I, I mean, wh- when you ultimately came out, what, was it a shock to anyone or, or were you in that open secret category? I'm in that open, was in that open secret category and I imagine an awful lot of gay men and lesbian women listening to this 
will know the situation where everybody kind of knows and uh, or strongly suspects and it's not a surprise uh, when you do and a lo- i think a lot of gay people had actually hoped to to come out in that way i think i did you know without a big show i i don't even like the word coming out i, I didn't want a fanfare a, a declaration an announcement or anything i i just hoped the penny would drop and it actually it, it did drop quite quickly i i, I... You got into some kind of hot water more recently for talking about people being able in some circumstances to to rechannel their sexuality. What did you mean by that? I mean that there's a growing understanding now that uh, sexuality is a sort of um, a a spread. Um, Most people are either completely homosexual or completely heterosexual, but a fair number of people are somewhere between the two. Bisexuality is a real thing. And there are quite a few men who have decided that being predominantly gay, they're going to be gay. There there are quite a few who felt they could have gone one way or the other and um, have decided instead that they're going to get married and have a heterosexual life. And I think it's important to acknowledge that there are people, quite a lot of people, for whom it really is a choice. Mm. And people can be influenced one way or the other. To that extent, it may even be that these various courses that some foolish churches suggest might actually divert somebody in one direction or another. I'm not in favour of it. Um, I think if you're you're gay and want to be gay, um, then good for you. Uh, it's, it's worked fine for me and lots of other people. But I really do think that this is, this is something on which people can be influenced. And I, I know that will give comfort to some of the wrong kind of people, my saying that. But, but I mm. believe that it's true, so I must say it. And uh, do, uh, You don't necessarily mean then changing their sexuality, rather that the point and the spectrum that sexuality exists allows them to maybe choose one life over another is that yes it? yes okay. no that, that that that's exactly it and, and and i think all through history um men and women have made made that choice and for some it has worked and for others it's been absolutely wretched you you you, you kind of wrapped up that answer that last answer by saying you know it's true therefore i must say it is that a principle a kind of a, a guiding light for you yeah i've I, i've i've always been um uh, somebody who blurts things out sometimes sometimes um ill-advisedly but uh when i was a little boy i was at a school called borrowdale school in um in what was then salisbury um in uh, what what is now zimbabwe and uh we had little caps um, us schoolboys and schoolgirls. did the girls have caps i can't remember but the boys did and on it was written truth conquers and th- that uh, message has sort of gone quite deep with me I, I there's nothing like the truth and there's nothing like being honest and nothing like telling the truth and in the end usually the truth will out but sometimes it's a hell of a wait it, has it become harder to live by that principle in the social media age in, in the age of Yes. Cancel culture, if we'll call it that. Yeah, I think so. And um, it, it's all too 
imminent eminent a danger now that uh, you you just say something because it's true and you suddenly find you've created some kind of a a storm a twitter storm as they say mm. i i <laughs> i regard social media storms as as like they're happening on another planet someone says oh did you know you've caused a Twitter storm, and I think well, that's quite interesting. But you know, like a storm on Jupiter, it doesn't really affect me. I'm not there. I'm here. They they can though. They can't spill over into the real world though, don't, can't they? Which is which is kind of yeah. a reflection more of of the type of people who are on Twitter, or the type of people maybe who who you will find and in positions of power and influence in the traditional media. Uh, whatever your interpretation is, I mean, what what can really be. A controversy that only exists online does have real-world ramifications. Oh, it does, and it can cause newspaper headlines in newspapers printed on, on real paper, and um, it it can genuinely upset a lot of people. And I, I'm I'm not entirely against uh, the idea that we should be a little more careful what we say than we used to be, a, a little more thoughtful about other people's feelings, a little more um, conscious of of other identities and, and the ways in which they may be bruised by the way we speak. I, I, I think that that's a good thing about our age, but, but it has created a kind of class of people who just want to go around looking to be offended. And uh, the, the offence then can become quite a news story and, and I think quite, quite damaging because it uh, discourages people from saying what they think. Well, then, speaking of controversy, did did you really read Animal Farm and identify with the pigs? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I went through a stage when I was a, a boy, when I was about, I suppose, nine, eight, nine, ten, when I just read and read and read. My parents would actually come and forcibly, as it were, put the lights out in my bedroom or I would just have read all night. And I ran out of books and I looked on a bookshelf and the only one I could see was called Animal Farm. And I thought, oh, that'll be fun. It'll be about animals. And I liked animals. So I read it and I just read it as a, I didn't know who George Orwell was. I hardly knew what communism was. I certainly hadn't heard of Lenin or Trotsky or any of those <laughs> things. I had no idea it was an allegory. I just read it as a story about animals. And um, I, I loved it, but I sympathised with the pigs because right from the start, when the animals took over the farm, I thought this is never going to work. You know, you can't have complete democracy. The chickens will be running around all over the place. You know, the dogs will be barking in packs. Somebody has got to uh, get a grip on this and and, <laughs> and lay, da lay down a little bit of order. And so when the pigs did, you know, I thought, good for you, pigs, carry on. <laughs> Well, no surprise then, I suppose, the uh, the, the, the uh, political party you felt yourself um, <laughs> attracted to. <laughs> yeah, the, there are elements of the Conservative Party that have uh, exhibit porcine qualities, but um, there are some much nicer parts of the party as well. I like to think I prefer the nicer parts. All right. Well, listen, we've come full circle. We started off with the Conservative Party uh, and we, we'll wrap things up uh, there. We only scratched the surface. You'll, you'll have to join us again, Matthew, sometime soon. I'd love to. Matthew Paris, author, columnist, former Conservative uh, MP as well, my guest this week for the Thursday interview. And don't worry if you missed any of that or you want to listen back. It's up on the uh, News Talk app, or it will be very shortly uh, up on the News Talk app as a podcast. That's our lot for today's show. Off the ball, as always, there up next. And I'll be back tomorrow from four. Have a good one. <laughs>